Good morning. Thank you, worship team, for allowing us to join our voices and worship God in unison. Thank you for leading us to the throne of worship. Let's pray before we look into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for your program, your, your uh, creation of the church, of the church on earth. And we thank you, Lord, that we know you and we know the truth. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us, to help us to understand your word, to help us to get closer to you, to help us to develop prayer lives and show kindness to others. And we pray in this time that we're going through and that much of the world is going through that we could be your lights and we could show people the way to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, our comfort and joy. That's our Christmas theme this year. And as part of Jesus being our comfort and joy, we saw that he was and is our true hope. You know, hope is a very positive aspect of life, isn't it? You know, hope can motivate us. It can get us excited. Hope can energize us. Let me... But you know, not everything we hope for or place our hope in always comes through, does it? You know, for instance, <clears throat> this was a, a major thing in my life. You know, last Sunday we preached on hope and we, we had a, a wonderful, uh, great worship, time of worship, fellowship. We had a great meal. We had Hope and Adria here and we were all, you know, energized by them and what they're doing down in Honduras. But my hopes were dashed later that day, <clears throat> excuse me, when my lifetime favorite NFL football team, <laughs> who was picked to win, you know, in those pregame <clears throat> pre shows, every single expert commentator picked my team to win. And then there was, there was at least four of them there in the studio. And then they went out to the field, and three more commentators picked my team. Everybody picked my team to win, except my team. <laughs> they chose to lose. And the only reason I bring that up is because, you know, in earthly matters, our promises don't always pan out, do they? But hope in God is a whole different matter, isn't it? We can always be disappointed in things of the earth. But our hope in God can, will never disappoint us if we know who we're talking to and what we're talking about. So what do we mean by hope in God? Well, you know, last week we saw how Adam and Eve were tricked by Satan to remove their hope out of God's plan for their lives and then to put it into Satan's lie. Satan came and fed them a line, and they were just too willing to go with it. God had told them not to eat from the tree, 
of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, that garden of Eden that was so beautiful and luscious and bountiful. And he said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. But then Satan came and told them that that wasn't true. God is just trying to hold something back from you. He doesn't want you to know good and evil like he knows. So Adam and Eve made a decision to transfer their hope from God's instruction and plan to Satan's plan of destruction. And that decision played, that decision actually plunged the whole world into sin and death. So then, was all hope lost at that point? I mean, it really looked like it. But no, it wasn't, because God, because of his rich mercy and his kindness and his love for us, God then blocked the pathway back to the tree of life. In the middle of the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so they had taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so God blocked the pathway back to the tree of life so they could not take from that tree and live forever in their hopeless state. Our only hope of eternal life is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's God's plan of redemption, and it's where we must place our hope. Because Jesus Christ is our hope, and that makes him also our comfort and joy. But now we want to look at another aspect of God's redemption plan. We want to look at God's promises. You know, <clears throat> up, well, all through my years growing up, and probably most people in that time, if you thought that you lived a good enough life, you would go to heaven. And if you haven't been good enough, you go to hell. I mean, that's just kind of the general thought. That may be changing a lot these days, but that's the way it was. And so what you would do is you would try to figure out somehow how to make yourself eligible for heaven. Like, well, I did this, and I, I didn't do this, and I did more good than bad, hopefully, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as we have been saying this morning, that isn't really where our hope lies, is it? It's not in measuring up our own standard of goodness that we think up, and that's what most people think. How good have I been? How how high does my goodness rate? It is placing our hope in God's plan of salvation. And here's another aspect of God's plan of salvation. We're going to look at the promise of God. Throughout history, in God's plan for the salvation of mankind, we see key promises made. And we're going to look at some of the promises that God has given over the time periods. In the days of Noah, the Bible says that the people on earth were extremely wicked. Everybody was just doing wickedness all over the place. So God causes a worldwide flood. Only those who got into the ark were spared. And then God made this promise to Noah. It's in Genesis chapter 9 and verses 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, 
This is God's promise. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, of every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again, and here it is, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, when I think of that promise that God made never again to destroy all the earth with a flood, if God had not made that promise, how do you think the people that survived and those that came after them maybe would react the next time it started raining? Because the last time it rained, wow. And then even today, we're still benefiting from that promise, aren't we? Because what if we see all kinds of evil <clears throat> excuse me, going on in our world and things really dipping like we see in some places today? You know, we see all this evil going on, evil maybe that we haven't seen before, and all of a sudden it starts raining. We're going, uh-oh. <laughs> if God hadn't made that promise that he wasn't going to destroy the earth with the flood again. But now we move to God's one of God's most significant promises <clears throat> is the call of Abraham. This was a monumental promise of God. And I want to show you what God said to Abraham. It was read this morning, but we'll read just a couple of verses of that, just a few verses. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The people of God. It all begins with Abraham, doesn't it? He is called to leave his country, his people, his family... God promises to make a great nation from him. He promises to bless all the peoples on the earth through him. What a promise. That's a big promise, isn't it? I mean, how would you like to receive that promise and thinking the whole earth is going to be blessed through you? And as we read further, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has never been able to have children. Sarah tells Abraham to go ahead and have a child with Hagar, her handmaid. <clears throat> and that was how they did things back then. Abraham takes Sarah's advice so he could have an heir because God promised him, you know, land and everything, riches and blessings. And so he needs an heir, and he's just thinking the way that people think back then. But in doing so, Abraham was not clinging to the promise of God, was he? It's like he and Sarah felt like God needed some help to fulfill his promise. And who wouldn't be tempted to think that way? You know, if we had been in Abraham's shoes. Who wouldn't kind of start thinking, well, 
I mean, Abraham's getting old. Sarah's getting old. Maybe God meant this. And there was so much at stake if Abraham did not have an heir. I mean, he was gaining land and riches, and he, he was becoming this powerful man. But who was it going to? But, you know, as we keep reading through Genesis, we know that God means what he says. And we know that God will deliver on his promises, no matter how impossible they seem. In an unbelievable turn of events, Sarah conceives a child at 90 years of age. Abraham is 100. This is the child of promise upon whom all hope rests upon whose birth the promises of God relies. So finally, the child of promise is here against all odds. <clears throat> now, you know, I, I kind of think at this point, God is doing some remarkable things. And people question whether God can do this or God can do that. We doubt maybe if he's going to be able to do this or he will do this. But then you think back, you know, well, you see, you know, Sarah at 90 and Abraham at 100. You think, you know, if God created this whole universe, couldn't he make a child appear? Isn't that just tiny? <laughs> and if I go back to that, then it just confirms that God can do whatever he says he will do. And then some years later, God tells Abraham to offer this child of promise as a sacrifice to him. And, you know, as we read that part of the story, we don't really see Abraham, you know, resisting or questioning or doubting. But he just humbly, you know, packs uh, Isaac up and on the donkey and takes the wood and just, just goes to this certain mountain that God tells him to go to. So I'd like to read now from Genesis 22 and verses 3 through 18. It says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants <clears throat> and his son Isaac. When he had cut off enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. You know, you kind of wonder what he's thinking there. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, to say that this passage leaves us with some questions in our minds is probably quite an understatement, don't you think? And of course, you know, as you go into life groups, you can discuss these things, what you think. But the passage tells us that God was testing Abraham. And God said, now I know that you fear God because you you have not withheld your son from me, even your only son. So God is basically saying that he was testing Abraham, testing his willingness to follow him, even to the point of giving up his son. That's what the passage says. And then God goes on to tell Abraham these rich blessings he's now ready to give him as his trusted servant and covenant partner. So God gave him this testing to see if he could use him in the the most amazing way that he was planning to use him. Descendants beyond being able to count, he says. You will have descendants that you can't even count all of them. You will have great victories over your enemies. Because Abraham was trusting in the promises of God. So, we get to Isaac, the son of promise. On down the line, he's married to Rebekah who has twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Isaac wants to give the blessing to Esau, the oldest son. But we know that Rebekah favors Jacob and devises a scheme to have Jacob receive the blessing instead of Isaac, Esau. Now, <clears throat> we don't really condone Rebekah's trickery and falsehood. You know, the led to... Uh, Jacob receiving the blessing. But as you keep reading the story in there, you see that Esau was not really concerned for the birthright. He came in from a hunting trip, 
And he gave up the birthright, willingly gave up the birthright just for a bowl of stew. So we see Esau placing little value in his precious birthright. And then later, Jacob also tricked his brother out of his blessing. So we aren't saying that Jacob was totally innocent, but we are saying that Esau was not the one to trust in to live out the promise of God to his people. Esau was very earthly-minded and apparently not the one God would choose to carry out his promise to Abraham. And so that's how we can put it together. We're covering a lot of ground here in Genesis, and we're just, not, we're, we're just mentioning the big things, the promises of God. But here's something you probably wouldn't expect, but turns out to be a major piece of the story. We know that Jacob leaves home because his brother Esau is planning to kill him in revenge. He took his birthright and his blessing. Jacob reaches Haran, where his uncle Laban lives. He was sent there to find a wife from Isaac's family. And in God's providence, Jacob runs into Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and agrees to work seven years for his uncle in order to have her for his wife. Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob and gives him Leah, the sister of Rachel, and not Leah, and not Rachel, I'm sorry. So Jacob is married to both Rachel and Leah, and Leah gives Jacob his first four children while Rachel has not been able to conceive. Leah's fourth child is Judah, from whose tribe the Messiah would eventually be born. So we have, you know, Jacob really loving Rachel over Leah. We have God giving Leah the first four children to bless Jacob. And the fourth child is Judah, from whom the Messiah will come. So isn't that something, the way God works things out? I mean, of course, the whole story is amazing how God works things out. Jacob had no intention of marrying Leah, but it was Jacob and Leah together that produced the line, or that carried the line of the Messiah. Jacob was actually angry when he discovered that Laban had deceived him. And we can understand that too, just how things went. But it was a case of the deceiver, Jacob, being deceived by his uncle Laban. And all of that was in the plan of God. Now the deception doesn't come from God, but God uses individuals and their circumstances And even sometimes he uses people with their ill motives to end up carrying out the greater good. Because God has control over everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows how to use things. He doesn't promote evil. He doesn't have people do evil. But he uses things that happen in order to bring about his good. The name Judah means... I will praise the Lord. 
And from the line of Judah would eventually come the Lion of Judah. And all of this was in keeping with the promises of God to Abraham and leading to the one who would one day reign as eternal king. Now, again, sometimes we question God because things don't look right to us. You know, the wrong person wins. The good person loses. The innocent person suffers. The person who had no chance is trampled on. And sometimes we may even get angry with God. Sometimes we may even say, how could God let that happen? That's being said all the time today. How could God let that happen? But just think of all the things that we know from, for sure from the past. When they're happening, we don't know. We find out later. But think of all the things that we know for sure from the past. How many things weren't the way they were supposed to be when they happened, but yet everything turned out to be good the way they should happen? And all that according to the promises of God. Things that often don't look right to us. If we were to keep on right now with promises, we could mention Joseph, his trials and his dreams. You know, Joseph in that jail, in that prison, on false charges. And then <clears throat> these two, uh, you know, the baker and the, the cook, or the baker and the whatever it was, uh, cupbearer, they, they said they had a dream. And, you know, here's Joseph. Remember, he had the dreams back a long time ago. And then he got thrown into a well. And he got traded as a slave. And he went into Potiphar's house and got thrown into jail. And then he was serving, you know, in the jail. And so these, these two servants of Pharaoh, they come in. They say they both have dreams. And Joseph says, oh, I can tell you your dream because God will tell me your dream. You know, Joseph also had dreams way back here, and they didn't turn out, did they? So what faith he had in God, that God would tell him these dreams when his dreams didn't seem to come anywhere near what God said, where the, the, the things bowing down to him, the sheaths bowing down to him. Joseph was in jail. But Joseph still had the faith in God that he could tell these, these men his dreams because God can give him the meaning of dreams. And yet... He was in the last place you would think somebody would be that could tell God's, that could uh, be helped by God's dreams. We could mention Moses and his enormous self-doubts, yet becoming one of the greatest leaders and hero of all times. We could mention David with his flaws, yet becoming the model king. You know, David is kind of, in the Bible, is kind of listed as the the um, 
you know, the son, he would be the father of the son of eternity, the king of eternity. It would be patterned after David's kingdom, after David's throne. Jesus is going to be sitting on David's throne. So Jesus is our comfort and joy. And he is our very sure hope and the very promise of God himself. And it all looked completely hopeless in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? With the flaming sword. And it all seemed to go to naught when Isaac was laid on that altar. But from those incidences and the promises of God, not to mention God's promise to Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, on and on, Promises in cases of impossible circumstances. Yet nothing is impossible with God. Our hope is sure. And God's promises always come through. Sometimes it's centuries. Sometimes it's longer than centuries. How long we waited for the Messiah to come the first time. And people wonder, you know, Peter says in his epistle, people laugh at the coming of the return of of Christ. But Christ came, and he's coming again. And his time isn't our time. And his ways aren't our ways, but they all turn out for good. And even things now that we can't understand, we'll understand them one day. It'll make total sense. That's why we don't walk away from God. God is our hope. And his word is our guide. And he's the place we go to. And he's the one we pray to. And he's the one we keep with, keep with, stay with. Because he will do us good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how much you've proven your love to us. And even though we can't understand everything that happens, every event, even every result, as time goes on, we know that we will see the result, the end result, in due time. And we thank you for your love, your power, uh, the way you've, your wisdom, the way you've planned things. And we pray that you would help us Uh, to just keep our faith in you so that we could walk in confidence even when things don't look good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.